The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 22, beginning at verse 15. We'll be reading through verse 25 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height, and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, and whirl you around and around, and throw you like a ball into a wide land where you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring in issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 36. We will be reading through chapter 10, verse 4, this morning. The Word of our God. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here in Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. 
this morning we come to a very important development in the public ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Up until this time, Jesus has been doing almost all of his ministry directly, while his disciples simply listened, watched, and sought to learn. Jesus is going to continue doing ministry directly, but he is also going to begin doing his ministry through his representatives. Still Christ's ministry, but he is going to become Christ's ministry through his apostles, whom he is now going to send out, we'll see this a little bit later in the chapter, for the very first time. Um, Let me give you an analogy. Uh, When we're young, some of you are still quite young, but some of us have grown old. Uh, But when we're young, uh, it's very common for us to travel all over town in the family car. But as we travel all over town, we're in the back seat, and our parents are doing all the driving. Uh, Later in life, there's going to come a time where you'll drive all over the country without thinking about it, second nature, as though it's the most natural thing in the world. But between those two experiences, there will come a time when one day you will be sitting in the driver's seat, one of your parents, yes, pray for them, one of your parents will be sitting in the passenger seat teaching you how to drive. Right? That, that's how those transitions work. Now, what do parents do the very first time they're going to take their daughter or their son out for a drive and teach them a little bit about how to do it? Well, they give them something that's going to be simple and easy, a place that's safe. I mean, you don't take your 15 or 16-year-old out for the first time and say, let's go up 93 in the middle of the night, or actually in the afternoon when people are driving 80 or 90 miles an hour. Right? You, you do something that's simple and safe. And then as they gain skill, you allow them to go out on their own. That's where we are in this portion of the gospel according to Matthew. Up until this time, Jesus has been doing all the driving. He's about to send the disciples out, but he's going to send them out on a short-term mission trip. He's going to send them out on this short-term mission trip with a very narrow and defined mission. And then when they come back, he's going to process their mission with them. He's going to help them understand what what they were doing, what they need to know for a future ministry that is going to become far more expansive. Because Jesus is not simply training them for this short-term trip. I mean, this mission is important. It is real. It involves real people in Israel. And so Jesus cares about that mission. But Jesus is also using this as a time to prepare them to send them to a far more expansive mission where they will begin the work of spreading the gospel even to the ends of the earth. Critically, Jesus is not going to send his disciples out to do their own thing. They are sent out in his name, with his message, in his authority, to accomplish his will. It is still Jesus' ministry. It is just now a ministry that Jesus is doing through his appointed representatives. And in the process, Jesus is making clear that he is reorganizing the people of God around his very own person. Uh, This morning we're going to look at this passage under four main headings. First, the compassion of Jesus drives the ministry and the mission of the church. Second, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Third, Jesus answers the disciples' prayer even before they ask it. 
And fourth, Jesus reorganizes the people of God around his own person. Now let me give you those again. Uh, that'll help you follow where I'm trying to go this morning, or really where the passage is already leading us. First, the compassion of Jesus drives the mission and ministry of the church. Second, Jesus teaches us to pray. Third, Jesus answers the disciples' prayer before they even ask it. And fourth, Jesus reorganizes the people of God around his own person. We begin with this truth. The compassion of Jesus drives the mission and the ministry of the church. Look at verse 36 with me. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever visited a church that was just a complete mess? I, I mean, I have. I've, I've been a Christian for a long time. But when you think in your own life, have you ever visited a church that was just a complete mess? That the pastor seemed so confused in his sermon that you wondered if even he understood what he was trying to say. Um, there were theological problems. And then after the worship service, as you talk to the members of the church, they seemed badly confused about even rudimentary aspects of the faith. How did you respond? As you drove off from that church, what were you thinking? What were you saying? Were you disappointed? Were you disgusted? Were you angry with the pastor and the other leaders of this church because they had done such a poor job shepherding the people entrusted to their care by teaching them the whole counsel of God's word? How do you respond when you come across a church like that? And then we should consider how Jesus responds here in this passage. Jesus looks upon the crowds and he plainly sees that they are a mess. And our Lord has compassion on them. First response of Jesus is compassion. To fully grasp the beauty of this response... We ought to consider three things. Uh, first, we need to remind ourselves that these crowds, whether they were in the synagogues, whether they were in the streets and fields, or whether they were in the temple courts, they were all Jews. These crowds that are a mess are not pagan Gentiles. You know, we would expect the pagans to be wandering around as a mess. They're walking in darkness. But these are the Jewish people, the covenant people, the people to whom God had entrusted the lamp of his word. And God himself had raised up shepherds for them, under-shepherds to him, of course, but shepherds for his people. And he looked out upon them, and they were still a mess. So the first thing we have to remember here is, this is not the mission field of going out to pagans. Jesus looks out upon the crowd that is the Old Covenant church. Now in this translation that we're looking at, a great translation, the ESV, um, I think the word harassed here might not actually be the most helpful translation. Uh, I say that without, without having a better alternative. Um, but I do want to explain to you what this word actually means. It, it carries the idea of cutting the skin. And so if a human being did it by, like, beating someone or flaying someone, that would be an oppression or a harassment. But in this context, that's not what's going on. 
The image that Jesus has here is of sheep that are wandering around without shepherds. This is a picture of sheep that are wandering into bramble bushes and the, and the thorns are sticking them and cutting them. They're wandering around, among sharp rocks. They're getting damaged. They're lost. They're confused. And they have no shepherds to bring them back into the right paths, to lead them by pools of calm water in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's what's going on. Now, we might have expected that this sort of stumbling around among the Gentiles would be something that Jesus would say, of course. But when he sees it among the people of God and he realizes that, to a large degree, it's the under-shepherd's fault, we would have expected, or perhaps this is just me, but I might have expected Jesus to respond with great anger. But that is not what Jesus does. Second, Jesus has compassion for them. See, Jesus doesn't look down upon the crowds and revile them for being stupid sheep. Um, you know, I, I sometimes encounter that in the church. Um, thankfully, not with the pastors in my own area here. We have a minister's fellowship, and I don't see this. But I sometimes see this among pastors and elders. They complain about the sheep. And, um, you know, maybe the reason why the sheep don't know very much is you're not doing a very good job teaching them. It's interesting that right before they put Jesus to death, the rulers, the shepherds in Israel, will actually condemn the crowds for being ignorant. That the masses who are, don't know God's word, that's why they're following Jesus, right? But whose job was it to teach them? It was the ruler's job who were appointed as under-shepherds in Israel. Jesus looks at the crowds with compassion, a compassion that we need to cultivate in our own hearts. For as we will see in a moment, it is Christ's compassion for the sheep which drives the mission and the ministry of the church. Now if we step back just a little bit, and we look at chapters 8 and 9 together, we see there's just a blaze of miracles that Jesus is performing. You know, he heals the leper. He heals people that are lame. He's casting out demons. It, it, it basically climaxes with him raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And after that, we see him once again casting out demons, uh, uh, causing a mute person to be able to speak, and opening the eyes of two blind men. Do you know what those miracles do? They do not bring people to faith. They bring about a division. The crowd responds and says, we have never seen anything like this in Israel. And that's right, of course. I mean, you can look at the prophets in the Old Testament that God worked miracles through, but, but Jesus is on an entirely different level. But that's not yet quite faith. They're marveling at Jesus, but they're not entrusting themselves to him. But do you remember how the Pharisees respond? Well, the Pharisees can't deny the remarkable things that are being done, but the Pharisees say he's in league with Satan. The reason why he can cast out demons is Jesus is in league with Satan himself. Do, do you get how evil that is? To take the work of the Messiah and attribute it to the work of Satan? As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, Israel's leaders should have been nurturing the people and guiding them to follow Jesus. 
But instead, those leaders are blaspheming Jesus, declaring him to be in league with Satan. At the hands of such false prophets, the people are helpless and in great need. And as I say, we might have thought that our Lord's first response would have been a blaze of anger against those false teachers. Uh, totally justified anger. Uh, think back to the Old Testament. You know when um, they, they sent out soldiers to arrest Elisha when he's up on the mountain? Uh, Elisha calls down fire on them. They call him a man of God. They don't really mean it. And Elisha says, if I'm a man of God, may fire fall from heaven and consume you. And it does. Well, well let me tell you, I'm, I'm not yet that sanctified because if I was the Messiah... I would have thought this is a perfectly good time to repeat that miracle. Here with these Pharisees who are attributing what I was doing to Satan. Yet Matthew tells us that Jesus' first response to these blasphemous religious leaders was great compassion upon the people who they were leading astray. Beloved by God's grace, that ought to become our first response as well. Third, Jesus places the blame squarely at the feet of the shepherds. I, I want to say that as a warning to you who are men. You know, the, the Bible does have a number of warnings about not letting many become teachers because you'll face a greater judgment. But if you aspire to a position of leadership in Christ's church, you do need to realize that the Lord of the harvest will hold us responsible for how we carry out the ministry that he entrusts to us now, it isn't that we don't have any responsibilities as individual sheep. Of course we do. Every one of us is called to follow Jesus. We are personally responsible for that. But there is a special responsibility for those who have been entrusted with caring for the sheep for whom the Son of God has given his life. And the Lord of the church will hold us accountable for how we carry out that stewardship. Well, what is the Old Testament background for these evil shepherds? Uh, in the Old Testament, the most common sheep-shepherd imagery is actually God is the shepherd. Think of the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, and, and, and we're the sheep. But there are actually quite a few passages where God makes clear that he's calling the leaders of Israel, the, the Levites in some cases, in some cases the royal leadership, that they too are shepherds of his people, under shepherds, to care for the flock of his hand. Well, one of the most striking examples of this imagery is found in Ezekiel 34. I encourage you this afternoon to go home and read the whole chapter. It's a, a very striking section. But the Lord opens his speech by saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not fought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth and none to search or seek for them. And then later in the passage, the Lord rounds it out like this. Behold, I, 
even I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. That's in justice, not injustice. When the appointed shepherds prove to be false, the Son of God takes to himself a true human nature to come into this world as our good shepherd. The good shepherd who will care for us and feed us. The good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. Then as the Lord of the harvest, the Lord sends out his disciples to work in the harvest field. You might get that imagery right. The Lord calls us in, and then he sends us out. Because Jesus has compassion on the sheep, it is not enough for Jesus to judge the bad shepherds. Out of his great compassion, Jesus seeks to raise up and send out faithful shepherds for the people of God. This is true of those who have already been gathered, and also of those sheep who are not yet inside the visible church. It is the compassion of Jesus which drives the mission and the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus teaches us to pray. That's our response. He's got to do the work, but he does call us to enter into this work through our prayers. Look at verses 37 and 38 with me. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I wonder if you've noticed that apart from the Lord's prayer, the Lord almost never teaches us the content of our prayers. He teaches us why we should pray, right? He, he teaches us why we should pray in faith, trusting that God will bless us, but he very rarely gives us content and says, pray this. Other than the Lord's Prayer, this is one of those striking places that he does that. So if you want to pray in the will of God, you want to know you're praying in the will of God, pray this prayer. I'll tell you also, Jesus doesn't simply pray this. He tells us to pray this earnestly. Right? You want to pray in the will of God, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. But here's what I want you to see. This is not simply a mechanical thing. You know, write this prayer down, make sure you say it once a month or once a week or wherever it goes. The, the way we actually enter into praying like this is by having our hearts changed so that our heart becomes like Jesus' heart. Jesus has compassion on the lost. Jesus has compassion on the sheep that have been brought into the church but are, are not being shepherded well. And it is out of Jesus' love for the church and his compassion on the lost that Jesus tells us to pray this. And if we come to have the same love for Christ's church 
and the same compassion on the lost, then praying this will become a normal part of our lives. And of course, we do this already in part. You know, every Sunday evening when we gather for corporate worship, we pray either for home or foreign missions. And that's a good thing to do. But you both can and should extend that in your own private prayers. Uh, You ought to have your heart aligned with God in terms of raising up shepherds both for the church and missionaries to call the lost in. And you ought to pray for them on a regular basis. Pray that the Lord would inspire godly and capable men to go to seminary to prepare to be pastors and missionaries, those that we will need in the future. By the way, please pray for seminary students. You know, many seminary students who are busily studying God's word and trying to do things, they're actually still trying to discern God's call on their life. They're like, you know, I'm interested in knowing the Bible better. I'm interested in knowing theology. I want to be useful, but I don't know what that looks like. So pray for them that God would guide them in in the way that he wants them to go. As a practical bit of wisdom, uh, I think it's important to remember that it's hard for us to pray for general things. So you might do it this afternoon because we're talking about it this morning and just pray in general that the Lord would raise up future pastors, future missionaries and, and send them out. But actually it's easier to remember specific concrete things to pray for, specific individuals, specific institutions. So I just give you a suggestion. Uh, since our congregation, uh, in a small way, but, but we truly do, financially supports Westminster Seminary in California, why not pray for that school, for their faculty, for their current students, for the future students there, that God would be bringing them true men of God who love him and love his word, who will grow and become faithful ministers and missionaries in Christ's church. Now, you may have noticed but there's a really abrupt change of metaphors between verses 36 and 37, right? Jesus is talking about sheep, and the next thing you know, he's talking about a harvest. He's not even talking about the field. He's talking about the harvest. But that's a pretty abrupt shift in metaphors. I want to suggest that one of the reasons why Jesus makes this shift is because the nature of a harvest that is ripe. When a field is ripe for a harvest, there's an urgency about getting the crops in. you got to go out now, right? You, you have to get out in the fields and work hard, long days, right? It's a lot of work for farmers. They, they, they aren't doing nine to five when the crops need to come in. It's the urgency of the imagery that I think drives this abrupt shift. God is saying we ought to be urgent about the Great Commission, right? Not, not yet, yeah, we know it's important, we'll get around to it. Now, now here's the problem. Uh, it's very easy to slip from having an urgency around the Great Commission. Uh, Our lives are busy. You you and I are doing important things in our lives that are not directly connected with the Great Commission, and that's perfectly fine. I want to be entirely clear. Don't get the wrong impression here. You can glorify God every bit as much writing software, putting additions on houses, counseling people, teaching children, being an electrician, all those things as you can as a missionary. Right? God is simply calling you to be faithful in where he's placed you. This isn't, well, stop your job that you know, isn't really religious, being a mechanical engineer and go be a missionary. That is, that is not what's going on here. But the thing is, only a small percentage of us are called to be professional carpenters. 
right? Only a small percentage of us are going to be um, physicists working in laboratories. But every single one of us has been called into God's mission to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we all go, but it does mean as the church, we all have a part in sending. We have a part in discipling our own children and discipling ourselves and reaching our neighbors with the gospel. And we ought to have a sense of urgency about it because this is of everlasting importance that we engage in this sort of work. And here's the thing. Jesus does not give us the great suggestion. Jesus gives us the great commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I'm telling you what to do. Disciple the nations. It's not a little task, big task. Disciple the nations by teaching them to obey everything I taught you. But be encouraged, I'm going to be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Right? I'm going to be doing this mission through you. I'm not sending you out to do your own thing. So how can we make sure that our sense of urgency for this work doesn't grow cold? Three suggestions. First, creating a disciplined practice of praying for our friends, our loved ones, our co-workers who have not yet embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that God would change their hearts. Well, that's the right thing to do. We ought to pray those prayers. But if you do that regularly, it's also going to change your heart. It's, it's going to up your sense of urgency about the importance of people hearing the gospel and say, that's more important than a lot of other things that are simply distracting me of my time. Second, we need to seek the grace of God that his priorities would increasingly become our priorities. And I have some bad news for you up front. I hate to, to, to throw out the bad news, but please stick with me. This is important to get. Here's the bad news. Nobody ever drifts into having Christ's priorities become their priorities. If you do nothing, that will not happen. Right? I've, I've been a Christian for more than five decades. Right? I've been a Christian for a long time. I am sure about that in my own life. If I'm just drifting along, you know what, you know what I'm doing in my prayers? I'm praying that God would bless my prayers. I'm at the center and, and, and I'm confident that's true for all of you as well. You will not simply drift into holiness or drift into having Christ's priorities. You're going to have to be intentional about it. And that means being intentional about our prayers. Third, please remember that a great deal of the Christian life is simply our grateful response to the grace of God that we have in Jesus Christ. That's why we organize the Heidelberg Catechism. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And the Christian life is in the gratitude section. Your, your grateful response to God, which of course is the right thing in itself, will also change your own thinking and your own heart. You can cultivate this gratitude by attending to the means of grace, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and by regularly giving thanks for the eternal riches that are yours in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Beloved, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus and your lips are filled with gratitude for what he has done, your heart's actually going to follow. And increasingly, what is important to Jesus will be important 
to you. So what do our prayers contribute to bringing in the harvest? That may be a tricky question. Because we want to say quite clearly, God uses our prayers. God doesn't need us for every, anything. But God has graciously brought us into his mission. He doesn't need my labors. He doesn't need me to hand out tracts. He doesn't need me to pray. But God uses all those things. And, and yet I think it's important to realize that the fulfillment of the Great Commission is not dependent on me or my prayers as though God can't act without me. Uh, the Lutheran scholar, Richard Lenski, puts it very well. He writes, Our prayers do not save the harvest, or even part of it. Our prayers unite in God's concern for the harvest, and therefore make us of one mind, one heart, and one will with him, partners with Jesus himself. Critically, Jesus does not tell the disciples to go out and get workers. Let me just repeat that. Jesus does not tell the disciples to go out and get workers. This mistake has often been made, and workers are brought in that God has not called. The harvest is God's, and he must provide the workers. Now, the amazing thing about all this is that though the Lord doesn't need us, he has been pleased to call us into his own mission to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. See, the Lord's compassion for us when we were lost led to him bringing us into his kingdom at the cost of Jesus' own life and by bringing the gospel to us and opening our hearts to embrace it. But that same compassion also leads you to having a life that will matter forever for good. Right? Everything you do, everything you do, Praying for the lost, God is going to use for eternal good. The compassion of Jesus drives the mission and ministry of the church. And because of his compassion, Jesus commands us to pray that the Lord would send out shepherds and missionaries into the Lord's harvest. Now as we turn to chapter 10, we see that Jesus is doing the very thing that he is telling us to request in our prayers. By the way, that ought to be encouraging. You know, when you pray in God's will, God answers the prayers. Jesus doesn't even wait for the disciples to pray. He, he tells them to pray, and then he does it. He, he calls them to come to him, and then he sends them out. Look at verse 1 with me. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. Um, this, word, this word here, uh, translated called, is actually a compound word. It, it means called to the face of. He's calling them to stand right before him so they can see him face to face. Uh, you might think of an analogy here of uh, an FBI class, for example, or some other law enforcement body, where, where the graduates are called to stand before their senior officers and they're given their very first jobs, right? This is going to be your first assignment. That's what Jesus is doing. He calls these disciples to stand in front of him face to face, and he says, I'm giving you your first missionary assignment. Now, next week, Lord willing, we will look at this commission in detail 
as Jesus sends the disciples out on their very first missionary journey. But the vital thing for us to grasp today is that the mission of the apostles is an extension of Christ's own mission. From a broader group of unnamed disciples, Jesus gathers the twelve. From now on, we're always going to talk about the twelve apostles. Jesus gathers the twelve, and he commissions them with his own authority. The astonishing work that Jesus has been doing in casting out demons and healing the sick, they're going to do it too. But they're not going to do it in their own power. They're going to do it in his. That is the only way that true Christian ministry ever advances. In the name of, and in the authority of, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The apostles are not going to be engaged in a separate ministry from Jesus. Rather, Jesus is going to be carrying out his own ministry through his appointed representatives. Uh, That leads us to our fourth and final point this morning. First, the compassion of Jesus drives the mission and ministry of the church. Second, Jesus teaches us to pray. And third, Jesus answers the disciples' prayer even before they asked it. Now, fourth and finally, as Jesus sends out the apostles, he is reorganizing the people of God around his own person. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So in verse 1, we are told that Jesus called the twelve to stand before him. Now we are told the names, and Matthew says explicitly, of the twelve. Matthew's making a point out of the fact there's twelve. Well, the reason for that is obvious. There's twelve patriarchs, therefore there's twelve tribes, Therefore, there's 12 apostles. See, Jesus is looking out on the house of Israel, which is a complete mess because of these under-shepherds, and he's regathering the people of God around his own person with the 12 apostles as foundation stones in the church that he is about to build. That's what's going on. Uh, When we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in Revelation chapter 21... We are told that the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is where the work of Jesus Christ is headed toward the New Jerusalem. Yet we need to be careful. A number of otherwise fine scholars have concluded that by calling and commissioning the 12, Jesus is reorganizing the people of God so that the New Testament church will be centered on the apostles. But that is terribly wrong. Uh, Just think back to the Old Testament church. Uh, Think of the people of God as they're traveling from Egypt in the wilderness, heading toward the Promised Land. The patriarchs have a really prominent place. All the tribes are named after them, and the people actually travel by tribes. But the patriarchs and the tribes are not at the center of the camp. At the center of the camp is the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. The living God is at the center of the people of God. That's true in the Old Covenant. It's just as true in the New. 
Yes, it is true that when we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, the foundations of the walls of the great city have the names of the apostles on them. But they are not at the center. At the center is the worship of the creator God and of the Lamb who gave his life to redeem us from our sins. Beloved, today's passage is not about Jesus preparing the apostles to do their own thing so that they will be the center of the church. They're not going out to do their own thing. This morning's passage is about Jesus preparing the disciples to go out on an extensive, an extension of his ministry so that he would do his work through them. And we can say by extension, through us. Yes, when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven, the names of the apostles will be written on the foundations of the cities, but the apostles will not be at the center. At the heart of the new Jerusalem is the worship of the Lord who created the heavens and the earth and the worship of the Lamb who was slain to wash us whiter than snow. So let me end with something really beautiful this morning. Um, if you just trace the arc of this narrative, right? you just trace the arc, and then you look forward to where Matthew's going in the whole book, to the Great Commission at the end, I think you're going to see something beautiful. This passage begins with the truth that the compassion of Jesus drives the mission and ministry of the church. It then moves to our dependence upon God. Right? We're called to pray. Prayer is an act of dependence. It moves from Christ's compassion for us to Christ's compassion through us as we are dependent on God in prayer. Then Jesus, who has gathered us in, sends us back out in his name and in his authority to disciple the nations by telling them about Jesus, by proclaiming the gospel, and by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. And we are to do all of this to the praise and the glory of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.